Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome once again to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby and today, monetary policy versus fiscal policy. Which one works best when it comes to controlling inflation, keeping unemployment in check and avoiding a recession? Or do either of them really work at all? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Now, Steve, central banks like to control inflation using monetary theory, in other words, working on the cost of borrowing as their way to control inflation and unemployment and to avoid recessions, whereas Keynes, and Steve Keen, I think, as well, uh, he argues that government spending is the way to avoid recessions, to pump prime the economy, and she'll be right, mate. Uh, so, first of all, Steve, I mean, does monetary theory work? Uh, yeah, it works beautifully well for central banks who want to employ no conventional economists. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work at all well for the economy. I think in this sense, uh, we've had one of the probably the best uh, empirical tests of a theory you could ever hope for because really since oh, the late 1980s, uh, maybe even earlier than that, the neoclassical emphasis on trying to reject fiscal policy and say the government should do nothing to control the economy whatsoever, left it with one thing they said it should do, which is to control interest rates. And this is the, um, the whole idea of, uh, I think it was called, it's called the Taylor Rule, after the mainstream economists who first suggested that this is what central banks have been doing, so let's make it policy. And then this policy, though it never actually explicitly adopted, turned up in the equations that uh, mainstream economists used to model the economy. So what, uh, what Taylor realised was that if you look at the uh, decisions of central banks over time, it had been uh, set with the target inflation rate of about 2%, and there was a, the number two turned up several times in the simple equation, but they would uh, be influenced also between the gap between what they called actual output and uh, potential output, in other words, the uh, output level that would apply if uh, full employment applied, and the rate of change of inflation. And uh, this Taylor rule mm. was seen as the, they never explicitly, well, some, some, some sort of banks did explicitly say we're following it, but most of them didn't uh, explicitly say we're doing it, but all the models that their economists put together had the Taylor rule as the one variable that the government was allowed to control, and that was all in the hand of central banks who were staffed by neoclassical economists, and the central banks were independent of the politicians, and it was all supposed to be absolutely hunky-dory and lead to a lovely, stable capitalist system. Right. But, it, but, but there is, the, there is a relationship, isn't there, between inflation and the level of unemployment, though, or do you say that they're not uh, well, related this, to each this, other? This comes back to the argument of the Phillips curve, which is somewhat tangential. But yes, it's, it's part of the argument is that the uh, the level of employment will change how uh, how much workers can demand wage rises, and literally every theory of economics, uh, to some degree, has this. You go right back to Karl Marx, you get a similar argument that workers' capacity to bargain for wage rises depends upon the level of employment. Um, but it became. I mean, this this is a whole other rabbit hole. 
You like going down rabbit holes, don't you? Well, yeah, we do. We always um, do. Stop me. Stop me. <laughs> stop, stop me. Went. <laughs> um, and this rabbit hole was at uh, one of the greatest and most misinterpreted economists of all time was a New Zealander called Bill Phillips. And Bill Phillips was actually an engineer by training and quite a brilliant engineer. Uh, to give you an idea of how brilliant he was, and this is all taken from his biography written by an Australian economist called Robert Leeson. Uh, at one stage, Phillips was, a, was uh, captured during the Second World by the Japanese, interred on a Japanese prison of war camp, which happened to be an island. On the island, uh, he found a derelict bus, which he spent his spare time trying to turn into a boat to escape. That plan didn't particularly get anywhere, but uh, at one point, the, all, all the British prisoners were enjoying it, and as, as one door should, a nice hot cup of tea. And the nice hot cup of tea was being generated by uh, components that Phillips had stolen from the Commandant's office, which meant he could actually uh, tap into the electricity system of the camp and seal some of it to heat up tea for the, the inmates and he also even managed to put together a, um, a functional radio system so that they could listen to broadcasts, not uh, not the propaganda of the Japanese about how well the war was going for them, but radio broadcasts from, shortwave obviously uh, from the BBC and other sources giving rather more accurate reports of what was happening back in the day when BBC actually gave accurate reports. No, right, and those so good old days, the, yeah. This, this is, yeah that's, that's the old days. So this fabulous man uh, retrained to become an economist and he applied his ideas of engineering and circuit diagrams, uh, basically the same sort of stuff that I design in Minsky these days. He designed those, uh, applied those ideas to build a model of the economy, which had as part of that model, and only as one particular component, an argument that um, what he called factor incomes, not just wages, but incomes of uh, of capitalist incomes of raw materials producers and so on, uh, their fact their prices would rise with the rising level of economic activity. And he literally drew hand drew a little curve there, which was non-linear, so it tapered to zero at. Um, um, a, a, basically like, like a hyperbola. It went, went flat and then it went vertical when you had high levels of, of uh, employment. Mm. And then to actually try to put this, um, to, to go from having just a hand drawing to something based on data, he went back to data from the UK from 1863 to 1917, I think it was, assembled a whole lot of data on um, the unemployment rate and the rate of wage change by looking at union data because at that stage, the government did not collect this information. The unions were the only ones who knew how many people were out of work in, in the UK. And using that curve designed from, as I said, 18, I think 1863 to 1917, he then interpolated it to data from uh, 1953, I, th I think from... Uh, somewhere around 50s, 50s to the 60s, and it fitted the actual current data like a glove. Now, he made a fatal mistake in saying it looks like we've got a menu choice here. If we want full employment of, say, say 3% of people out of work in the UK, which would be regarded as frictional employment, then we need a rate of inflation of, of uh, 4%. And if you, if you want to have uh, zero, um, what's this, 
if you want to have zero um, wage change, you need an employer rate of 5%, like a, a menu choice. Mm. And politicians saw this and said, oh, great, this is simple. We just say, well, which, what do we want? Do we want the spicy menu with low unemployment and slightly high inflation? Or do you want the bland menu with uh, um, higher unemployment but no inflation? We can make a choice between them and it will stay there. Right. And this became the way the Phillips Curves is interpreted, completely misinterpreting the idea behind it. And also, Peter Ganning, the part that he said it was non-linear. So all this stuff turns up now in, in so-called modern dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. They have an equation which implies that by varying the rate of interest, you can vary the level of economic activity, and by varying that, you vary the rate of inflation. So you can hit this sweet spot, which they're always aiming for. This is where my argument you can summarize their theories in three numbers they want a two percent rate of inflation a three percent rate of uh, real economic growth and a four percent rate of uh, rate of interest giving you a nominal rate giving a two percent real rate that's their target right and this is what they thought they could do by monetary policy right well let's go let's hear just a a quick word from the man who perhaps uh, uh, is responsible for monetary policy Uh, let's go back to what I guess this would be the 1970s this is uh, this is I just want to settle for once and for all the point that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. That proposition has been documented over and over again. We have evidence for the United States for over 100 years, for Great Britain for 200 years, for Sweden for 200 years. There has never in history been an inflation that was not accompanied by an extremely rapid increase in the quantity of money. There has never in history been an extremely rapid increase in the quantity of money without an inflation. So he's right on that, isn't he? That the relationship between the amount of money and the level of inflation? You know, I can actually just... <laughs> I knew it was going to be Milton Friedman. I was bracing myself. <laughs> uh, um, there's actually been a very interesting recent piece on, on this um, argument done by one of my bloggers. I've got a, uh, one of my Twitter um, correspondents. I've got to go back and check. And so I think it was uh, Cameron Murray who put it up there. What Milton Friedman, to argue Milton Friedman's proposition that it's always a monetary policy, monetary f- phenomenon, what he was working with was called the quantity theory of money equation. And though mainstream economists will deny that they still use it, it's still fundamentally in the background of their thinking. And that said that you can break uh, output into prices times the number of transactions on one side of the equation, and on the other side, it'll be equal to the amount of money times the velocity of circulation of money. Now, an essential part of Friedman making that claim he made, and of course he convinced Maggie Thatcher and he convinced Ronald Reagan that it became the practice of monetary policy in the 70s and 80s, um, he convinced them uh, that, that, that that equation implied that government money creation caused inflation because he, he argued empirically that the velocity of money was a constant. So that's this equation has... Pardon me being mathematical on a verbal discussion, but prices times transactions was equal to money times velocity, and therefore he differentiated the whole lot and said that uh, uh, transactions you can regard as being set by um, bar, basically barter operations between people, that that's the level of transactions can't be affected by monetary policy. That was assumption one. Uh, secondly, velocity is constant. That's assumption two. And therefore, the change in prices is totally given by the change in money. And if you then also assume that the government was the only money creator, that was where the idea of helicopter money came from. 
the system mm. helicopter being outside the economy dropping money in. Therefore, the inflation rate was entirely due to the government creating too much money. And all you had to do was reduce the rate of government money creation, and that would reduce the rate of inflation without affecting the level of real economic activity, yada, yada, yada. And an essential part of that was the idea that velocity is a constant. Right, which it's not, now, of course, because we've seen it reduce not, so much. Which yeah. it's not. And yeah. not even that. This is, this is why I'm mentioning the comment from one of my Twitter correspondents recently. Again, I think Cameron Murray. But we'll check it up and put it on the Patreon blog for people to see. Milton did a graph to show the st- uh, stability of velocity of money over time. The left-hand scale of the graph was between 0 and 10. Velocity was varying between 1, uh, one and 3. Now, if, if you put 0 to 10 as your range, and the retro range of the data is 0 to 3, or 1 to 3, what you get is it looks like a pretty flat line. Mm. But if you reset the scale to say, well, what's the maximum minimum range of this whole thing, it's volatile. So he even fudged the way he presented his own right. data. So, if his, if, his so if, his, data, if his scale was 1 to 3 rather than 1 to 10, then it wouldn't look so flat. It, it would look obviously was not a constant. Mm. Obviously not a constant, mm. quite variable. And uh, later work by... Um, more empirically honest, even though they were ideologically probably even more right-wing than Milt Friedman, uh, honest researchers, uh, uh, Kidlin and Prescott, who were two winners of the Nobel Prize in economics for creating real business cycle uh, models which gave birth to the DSG models of today. Their conclusion was that volatile uh, velocity was highly volatile and pro-cyclical. In other words, velocity rose during a boom and fell during a slump. Now, that blows a Hiroshima bomb-sized hole through Milton Friedman's argument that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, i.e. change in inflation due to change in level of money, not due to any change in rates of circulation. That's simply empirically false. And uh, on top of that, he left out the actual question of money. He assumed that money was only created by the government. Now, this is... Finally, I, I no longer have to quote obscure economists like myself or the recently deceased and dear, dear departed, truly dear departed, Basil Moore uh, or Hyman Minsky or Wynne Godley to make this case. I can quote the Bank of England and the Bundesbank. Yeah. And this is one reason why the, why the conventional economists are being so resistant to admitting the importance of saying that banks create money, private banks create money, is that it blows a hole in the entire edifice. So let's look at how um, central banks operate now uh, in terms of their policy. So we obviously they you know they work on the basis of either an expansionary policy or a, a contractionary policy. An expansionary policy, and let's ignore the uh, the role of debt in all of this to, to start with. Let's assume that there's you know sure. a country has no debt problem. So an expansionary policy, lower interest rates. The idea is if we lower interest rates, there's going to be more credit, and therefore businesses expand. That creates jobs. Is that right? Is that is the theory right behind that? It's right to some degree, but it's incredibly mild because what it's arguing is the determinant of a level of investment is the rate of interest. And the proposition here is that a firm has a range of projects that it's considering undertaking. It works out the cash flow it expects from those projects over time, and then it's discounts by the interest rate. So if you increase the interest rate, you increase how much you're discounting your future cash flows. And if the interest rate uh, falls, you uh, you get a higher cash flow. So varying the interest rate, fine-tuned level of business investment. That is nonsense for the simple reason that, yes, interest rates do matter and discount does matter, but far more important 
about determining how much investment firms are going to undertake is how confident they are of the economic situation they're in. If they have high expectations, they're going to invest like crazy. Low expectations, they won't invest at all. It's their expectations of profit that determine far more so than the rate of interest. But aren't they? But wouldn't interest rates determine what the, that level of confidence is? I mean, if your interest rates are lower, you're going to say, "Well, this is this is this is a good time to borrow." Therefore, uh, you'd be nuts not to, wouldn't you? Well, it's, it's, it's much more complex again than the models make out because if interest rates are low, it's normally because the economy has then fallen into a hole, uh, and now because what we do have is central banks dramatically. Well, they, they used to very dramatically vary interest rates by a quarter of a, by one percent in every you know, quarterly, every monthly meeting, they might vary the rate of interest by 1%, which is huge variability mm. in the rate of interest. These days, they vary by a quarter of a percent. But they've been at zero for the last 10 years. Now, they've been at zero the last 10 years, praying that that would lead to an increase in investment. And one of the reasons why a number of mainstream economists are finally saying, look, there must be something wrong with our models because... We've been doing this for 10 years and it hasn't given us anything like the bang for our buck we thought it would give. Um, this is where people like uh, Narayana Koshalakota, who was an extremely conservative economist as president of the Minneapolis Fed, which was the most conservative of all the 13 Fed uh, Federal Reserve um, uh, central banks that make up the Federal Reserve system. He finally came out and said that uh, given the high, quote unquote highly surprising nature of the data of the last decade, we have to accept we simply do, don't, do not have a settled model of the economy. Mm. So the empiricalist, this is why I'm, I'm, you know, I could use all sorts of theoretical arguments here, but I want to come back to the empirical track record. A decade of zero interest rates has not led to the boost in investment that was being expected. Investment is still at a very low level historically. Certainly in Britain, it's at an incredibly low level. The Americas recovered to some degree, but nothing like as much there as their models were always predicting it would recover. To. Well, that's why I said. So that's why I said it. You know, let's look at. Let's ignore the question of debt because isn't that actually the issue? Isn't it the the, the fact that because we're carrying so much household and private debt, that's why we're not seeing this. Uh, you know, would the, would this model work if, if, if debt was very low? But the fact that it's so high means there isn't that confidence to spend. You know, mate, you're stealing my thunder here. Mm. Sorry, I've been doing so many of these now. I can just interview myself. But I'm, I'm pretty, that, you, but could, I was, you could. But I was, I was wondering, without the debt issue, are they right? Exactly. The, yeah. Well, if you could get rid of the debt issue, their model would start working again because they're leaving out the role of credit completely. They're ignoring credit as a component of aggregate demand and they're ignoring the level of debt, private debt, as a, as a drag on on demand of the economy because they think, well, if, if there's if there's an increase in debt, well, therefore the, the, the lenders have got more money to spend and the, or the borrowers have got more money to spend and the lenders have less. It evens out. If debt falls, the borrowers have got uh, more and, the, and the, the lenders have got less because they're getting less revenue from the money that, pardon me, they've lent out. So it comes down to saying it's, it, you can ignore it. It, it swings and roundabouts and uh, one up, one down, no effective credit and no need to worry about level of private debt. Both absolutely wrong because to go back to that equation of Milton Friedman's uh, price times transactions equals M times V, that equation is wrong once you, rather incomplete, once you include the role of private debt, as I have done, this is a simple, logically, mathematically derived, because change in debt creates an identical increase in the money supply, credit-based money, 
the actual equation is price times transactions equals mean times velocity plus the change in debt. Right. And when the change in debt, as it was in America's case in 2007, it's 15% of GDP, that's a very, very big factor to be ignoring, particularly when it's the most volatile factor. So, so it went from being plus 15 in 2008 to minus 6 in 2010. Right. So that's monetary theory, monetary policy, which might work if we, if we didn't have debt to get in the way. So it needs to be modified is what you're saying. So what about the other side of the coin, which is uh, looking at uh, fiscal measures, which basically translates to uh, government spending being uh, one way of avoiding recessions. Let me play you another sound clip. Uh, you might like this, actually, as to whether government, because the big problem, of course, is the moment we start looking at government spending, as in fact we are uh, in, in America right now with, with Donald Trump, is that people start to get worried about the level of government debt and when does that become an issue? So who am I going to play you a sound clip from? Have a listen from this to this from uh, you know, America's greatest investor, a man who knows a bit about money, I suspect, Warren Buffett. All of our debt is printed in our own currency. I mean, that's the key. And then the question is, do you abuse that in some way so that the currency declines in value at a rapid rate? Well, interestingly enough, I was born in 1930. The dollar from 1930... Uh, is worth about six cents today. So I've lived during a period where the dollar's lost 94% of its value in terms of purchasing power. And yet at the same time, in real terms, the GDP of the country per capita has gone up six for one. So we've had six for one, just think of that, one person's lifetime. Uh, we went centuries in the world where the gains were in nothing in a century or a few percent. And six for one in one person's lifetime, at the same time, our currency has decreased, you know, by, in, 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 uh, by uh, 94%. And that, despite all of that, we are the world's reserve currency and people are willing to lend us the money, lend us money for nothing, virtually, uh, currently in, in, in large sums. And I, I, I do not see that changing unless we do something incredibly foolish. Now, we have to stabilize the, the debt as a percentage of GDP, which means we can have debt increase by two to three percent a year if GDP grows two to three percent a year. And I think that's a very re realistic possibility. We can't keep having debt grow at a faster rate than GDP, although there's it can go on for a long time and it has gone on for a long time. So there we are. Warren Buffett uh, basically saying, well, you do need debt to drive growth. Yeah, listen, <laughs> I'd take my hat off to Warren Buffett for wisdom like that. I knew from his work in finance for decades that he, the guy was able to see through bullshit. And that's a, a simple empirical statement of saying this has happened over time. And here are all these you know, hard, hard money, sound money types saying we'll all be ruined because the value of feed money is going to zero. He points out, well, it has fallen dramatically over my lifetime. However, Real income has risen by a factor of six mm. in the same period time period. If that's that's failure, let's continue failing. <laughs> and, and that is also when you mentioned is you know, growing by two or three percent of GDP. That is something else which I think is is quite. It just shows how damn good the man's mind is. Because when I looked at the role of you know, what should the level of government, uh, what should the level of money creation be by the government. Uh, then, of course, the modern monetary theory basically is the government create as much money as it needs to enable full employment to occur. And that's where the huge fights are occurring between modern monetary theorists with whom I am um, consistent. I have some 
disputes as we both know, but I think that their accounting logic is clearly sound. Uh, disputes with them and the sound money people to say, oh, anything more than uh, any deficit at all is really, really bad and we've, we've, you know, handicap our kids, et cetera, et cetera. He said a rate of about 2 or 3% per annum. Mm. When I modelled, um, well, he's the, basically saying, you know, it's, it's it's ideal if it's below your your yeah. rate of GDP growth. Well, but then also exactly saying, but actually, it's been it's been bad for a while, and <laughs> it doesn't seem to be causing too many problems. But, but no, but what, what, but what he was getting close to was what I found when I, I did my mod, my modelling of the money creation level. Uh, given an economy which is expanding over time, what level of government money creation works sustain? Uh, a stable economy over time. And it was the nominal rate of economic growth divided by the velocity of circulation of money. That's your target. Mm. So rather than the target for the difference between government spending and government taxation being zero, which is the argument of the hard money people, the argument of the European Central Bank, what's been described in the Maastricht Treaty, the obsession of all the politicians around the world, including Theresa May, um, well, not, not Donald Trump, obviously, uh, they have a target of zero. I'm saying that target should be the nominal rate of economic growth you want, which is roughly of the order of 5 or 6% of GDP, divided by the velocity of circulation of money, which is roughly 2 or 3. Mm. And then you say if the government spending is 2% of GDP more than taxation, that is a level which may give you, surprise, surprise, a tranquil capitalist economy, which is what central banks are trying to achieve by their interest rate shenanigans, which are based on a completely fallacious model. Right. So are you saying in that case, we don't, if we followed that, we wouldn't need to follow the uh, monetary theory approach? Or do the, do the two, how do the two work side by side? And that was sort of what did I want to get to. You know, there's, there's two approaches yeah, here. Yeah. There's the monetary theory and there's, uh, you know, and then there's the fiscal approach. How do you get the balance between the two? Or do you just throw one of them away? No, you, you realise that the interest rate control is far less powerful than the neoclassicals believed. Uh, they they really thought they could fine-tune the economy by varying the interest rate twice as fast as inflation was varying fundamentally. So if inflation was going from 2% to 3%, the interest rate should go from, say, uh, 4% to 6%. And they thought that would stabilise the whole thing. It was just a level of getting a, a question of getting the price level right. And transactions would take care of themselves because this is a capitalist economy, therefore it's always in equilibrium. Can't you see equilibrium everywhere? Um, that was their thinking. In fact, the world's far more complex than that. And the monetary policy does have real effects. Uh, and they thought there was just the interest rate that mattered. What's coming out of, of the empirical data, the failure of their policies for the last 20 years, and the wisdom of people like Warren Buffett, is that you need government money creation as well as some manipulation of the rate of interest. But fundamentally, the neoclassical vision right from Milton Friedman on was to get rid of fiscal policy. And there's yet another element about that we might talk about, which was the whole idea, the idea of what they call Ricardian equivalence, which argued fiscal policy had zero effect whatsoever. Mm. And during the crisis, you had a guy called, I think, Alessandro Alisi, pardon me for getting his name here, which is a good thing. Uh, he was arguing that, that a fiscal cutback, so running a surplus, a government surplus, taxing more than you spend, could actually stimulate the economy. Completely false, but again, grabbed hold of by the hard money mob to argue that running 
running a government surplus. It's the sort of stuff Cameron and, and Osborne were trying to do in 2010 to 2015 in the UK. That'd be good for the economy. It simulated garbage. It, it caused the slowest recovery from a downturn in the UK's history. Uh, all these policies are abject failures. And these are all attempts by mainstream economists to say fiscal policy doesn't matter. Just use monetary policy to control the rate of inflation, leave the real economy to itself. What we've learned from the empirical outcomes of the last 20 or 30 years is that you need fiscal policy, which creates additional money, and you need some control over the rate of interest uh, as a potentially uh, having some impact on the rate of in- inflation, but nothing like the level that neoclassical theory assumes it has. Right. So if you're so if you are uh, if you're too expansionary in your not expansionary is probably the wrong word, but if you are pushing too much fiscal stimulus, then you perhaps need to uh, influence uh, interest rates so that you're not getting runaway inflation as a result of it. And you also have inflation coming from wage push or, or, or resource push pressures. This is again going back to Phillips's point, mm. uh, which was not just about wages, but also about raw material supplies and so on. Um, and this also turns up in non-orthodox economics and post-Keynesian economics. One thing we will accept is that, in general, prices are set as a markup over cost, the, the primary cost of production, which, in a, in a modelling sense, does come down to the impact of wage demand. Uh, wage demand and raw material demands that's so prices are a markup on on wage costs in the simplest possible model a markup on wage costs and those because most firms face uh, declining costs of the increase output they have excess capacity they can actually you know, reduce their prices when there's an economic boom going on so you don't actually get much price pressure coming from corporations themselves where you do get the price pressure from workers who can find the demand for more of a share of the surplus with the bargaining power they get out of higher wages, but also raw materials producers because raw materials are not produced um, in the situation of declining costs. If you want to pump out oil more rapidly from a uh, oil reservoir, you do have to uh, you know, change the pressure settings. Uh, you do have to dig more coal at a deep and deeper seams and stuff like that. And so the energy costs do rise. And that's the combination of wage pressures with very high employment plus raw material pressures because finally OPEC could be formed and uh, the Arabs could cease being screwed by the, the four sisters of oil as they were before uh, the 1973 uh, conflict with Israel. Those pressures are what gave us inflation in the late 70s and early 80s. And that's what gave rise to the belief that we could control it using monetary policy. Mm. Uh, Well, there's one failed experiment for you. So it's sort of, from what you're saying, I mean, the the power, the influence is sitting with the government and not with the the central bank. Makes you wonder... You know, is there is there much of a role for central banks in that case? Because you certainly wouldn't want to say to central banks, "Well, okay, you can set uh, how much the government is going to spend." Um, so, do you bring in the the idea that well, maybe governments control interest rates if we if we believe they still have a role to play? But certainly, separating oh. out the two doesn't make a great deal of sense, does it? No, it, it's it's certainly what you what you have is the argument that governments should control the creation of government money and should have targets based on the level of government money they want to inject into the economy through fiscal spending, which has to be financed by the central bank. So there is a collaborative role between the two institutions. 
creating additional money when the economy is in a slump yeah. and for reducing that rate of creation when it's in a boom and also for keeping a very careful eye on the level of private debt because you don't want that to exceed, in my opinion, not in, um, totally empirically worked out, you don't want it to exceed about 70% of GDP. Now, it's currently for America 150%, Australia it's 220%. <laughs> We've broken through that, uh, what, what I would say is a, my Milton Friedman rule, I would be setting that rate one-third to one-half where we've got ourselves into. Right. All right, very good. Well, you and Warren Buffett need to uh, get together and sort out the problems of the world because it sounds like you're you're singing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, he is a smart guy, isn't he? He's an extremely smart guy. And like one of the, I remember one, one of the statement I've seen from him at one point was to say that um, he was challenged by people that he, he couldn't make money on the stock market because there was no money to be made because stock markets were efficient, by which economists don't mean what normal people mean by the word, saying that they um, in, prices encapsulated all available information, so there was no information asymmetry or anything else to exploit. And Warren said, well, that's true, I'm going to be a very poor man. I don't think to see any more than that, do I? No. And actually, a good uh, leading, because we are going to talk about information asymmetry next time on the uh, Debunking Economics podcast. Good to talk, Steve. Indeed, mate. Yeah. Is there a power in having more information than everybody else? Well, obviously there is. But how much does that influence the uh, income spread in the economy? And is it a good thing or a bad thing? Some interesting questions for us to tackle next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.